Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, so Robert and I, along with Seth, have a week coming up. Uh, I guess it's a couple of weeks from the day we're recording here that we're going to be out. And we figured in preparation uh, for being out for a week, we should uh, we should catch up on some listener mail. It's actually been a long time since we reached into the mailbag and, and summoned the mailbot Carney. That's right. Uh, you know, Carney has been making it through this whole uh, pandemic thing as well. We, we were tempted to... Um, terminate his functions uh, as a cost-cutting measure, but we found other ways to uh, to cut back instead. So uh, uh, without further ado, let's, let's bring Carney out. Now, one thing uh, we, we might want to make clear to the audience is that now we cannot look at Carney, because if we do, we will be petrified and turned to stone. That's one of the cost-cutting measures. They've had a safety feature or two removed. Uh, so we have to we have to kind of keep our backs turned and use some some mirror uh, kung fu if we want to get the messages from him. But we're all doing what we got to do. Yeah, um, I don't know why he had the Gorgonian uh, protocol installed in his systems, but uh, it's activated now. So we're stuck with it. And it looks like this first batch of mail that uh, Carney's handing us is in response to our episodes about the MOA of New Zealand, the great, uh, the great uh, ratite cornucopia. That we got a lot of great listener mail about this stuff. I, I've noticed something: people from New Zealand really like talking about being from New Zealand. Well, you know, I, I would too if I was from New Zealand. It's a pretty cool place. Yeah, a lot of it seems to be Middle Earth related. I, I wonder if the same kind of responses would have happened before the Peter Jackson movies, but. Uh, but yeah, maybe let's dive right in uh, on responses to the MOA. Robert, do you want to read this message from Theo? Sure. Theo writes in and says, Hi, guys. I absolutely loved both of the MOA episodes. I'm a Canadian backpacker currently in New Zealand, and I love listening to your podcast while I'm at work picking raspberries, essential work even during the lockdown. I especially loved learning about de-extinction, and I intend to go on a research rabbit hole about mycorrhizal networks in New Zealand forests. I hope you do more episodes about New Zealand in the future. I would love to learn more about Maori agriculture and the plants they brought with them. I had to rush through a fascinating exhibit in Auckland War Memorial Museum about the cabbage tree. Apparently, there are many uh, cultivars of and many uses of this species, and I would love to hear about them. We've been in lockdown since March 25th, so I really appreciate your podcast. It helps keep me entertained and sane. Cheers, Theo. Thanks for getting in touch, Theo. So this next message comes to us from someone who is just identified as the letter S. Uh, I don't know what that stands for, but S really seemed to enjoy the MOA episodes, but wanted to add a fact that they think we didn't stress enough, which is, quote, although museum MOA skeletons were set erect, more recent science indicates that they were not so. And this is an interesting point. S is correct about this. Like the oldest museum reconstructions of the MOA, you, you might mm -hmm. see these old uh, pictures of how they were posed, they would have the neck vertebrae extending straight up into the air off the body. Uh, and I was reading about this in a piece hosted by the Auckland Museum, actually the same museum that Theo mentioned, uh, which explains that these earliest museum exhibits of MOA skeletons were based on the posture imagined by the British paleontologist Richard Owen, who we talked about in the MOA episodes. But I think it was beginning around the 1980s, most museum displays were corrected to show what would have been a more common posture 
when the moa is just you know not reaching up at something but just walking around and that would be not with the neck it's extended straight up from the body but kind of curved with an s shape with respect to the body yeah, I remember reading about this as we prepared for those episodes, and I think we mainly just ended up focusing more on just sort of the the undeniably uh, weird and amazing things about the the Moa, uh, without really getting into to this issue. But but we see this in other areas of paleontology as well. We've discussed it in the context of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, for instance, where earlier. Um, Attempts to put together the the bones of the T Rex uh, gave it a much more erect posture, and we've corrected over time uh, for a, for a, what is also a more horizontal uh, presentation with the tail outstretched behind it for balance. Uh, and one sees other similar things with other uh, prehistoric creatures as well. Uh, the initial way we put them together is not necessarily uh, where we are today in our understanding of how they probably um, you know stood and held themselves and moved around. Yeah, there's a whole lot, actually, that we're not told explicitly by bones or by fossil remains, and that can be very interesting to to play with variations on. Of course, one is posture, how the body would have stood, and and what would be the you know normal ways of arranging the neck and the arms and all that kind of thing, and the tail. But another thing, of course, is soft tissue. This is actually a debate with the moa itself. It's like, what kind of soft tissue did it have? Was it a plump bird? Was it a skinnier bird? Um, this is an interesting issue that's often hotly debated in the paleo art world, how to render the, the sort of uh, soft, fleshy tissues of dinosaurs and other extinct animals that we only now know by their bones. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it also comes into play with toy dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, you can instantly tell if, uh, if, if a toy dinosaur is based on these, these uh, outdated understandings of, uh, of dinosaur posture or if they're more recent. All right, here's another one uh, related to the MOA. This one comes to us from Nathan. Hey, Robert and Joe. I just listened to your recent episode of Rise of the Moa, and you were uh, talking about large birds that could kill humans, and my mind automatically went to a prehistoric ratite that roamed parts of North America around the same time as the saber-toothed tiger, called Titanus wallery. Now, uh, this is, by the way, uh, you can look up images of this. This is a terror bird, often oh, yeah. just referred to as Titanus. Uh, and indeed, uh, cre- the, the, the terror birds are, are amazing to look at. Uh, anyway, Nathan continues, they roam throughout the lower USA and possibly into South America two to five million years ago. They stood about 2.5 meters tall and had great speed, which people uh, think was their main hunting strategy along with their sharp beak. This bird has always interested me uh, and thought you all could compare other extinct species to this one. Thanks for your time, Nathan. I've always wanted to be eaten by a bird. Really? Now, I think we mentioned this in the in the Mo episodes, but you actually have done episodes uh, about the terror birds in the past, right? Did you do them back with with Julie years ago? Uh, that sounds right. I don't. I know I've read about them before, but I honestly can't remember if we covered them at all. Uh, certainly, it's the kind of topic we could return to. Yeah, because they're uh, they're they're totally fascinating, and uh, there's the North American. Uh, connection here. I mean, you'll find examples of, uh, uh, you'll find fossil evidence of this creature in Florida, um, which, by the way, it, it always uh, it always kind of uh, amazes me where there'll be some sort of, there'll be a fossil like this and you'll think, this should be this should be the fossil of Florida, right? This should be the state fossil. But if I'm not mistaken, the state f- uh, fossil of Florida is um, is a coral. So, <laughs> uh, sometimes they're, they're less exciting. Like, Georgia has a pretty good one. Uh, we, we have oh, a, yeah? Uh, a Cretaceous uh, shark tooth that is our state fossil. Oh, cool. Uh, that, 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it varies from state to state. Some have really cool ones. Uh, some have multiple ones. Uh, like uh, Kansas has both a Pteranodon and a Tylosaurus. So they have like two awesome creatures. Well, meanwhile, Kentucky, it's um, a brachiopod. <laughs> it's, huh. uh, you know, it's, it's like little shells. Uh, right. And not to say these aren't, you know, important fossil finds, but in terms of like the kind of thing you might plaster on the side of a U-Haul truck or put on a license plate, you know, I think you can jazz it up a little bit. I I am at least encouraged that apparently uh, every state acknowledges the existence of fossils. Uh, Yeah, that is a good sign. None of them have have, have taken them back yet, right? Um, But yeah, there there, there are tons of great ones. Nevada, uh, you guys have an ichthyosaur. Uh, You know, New New Jersey has a duck-billed dinosaur. Um, New York has a sea scorpion. Uh, You know, it's a wonderful list. Uh, You know, I recommend checking it out. Find out what your state fossil is. And if it's disappointing, fight for it, you know? Like if you're if you're uh, if you live in Virginia and your state fossil is a scallop, you should you should be a little mad about that. You should, you should fight for something maybe a little more robust, uh, something with uh, with claws and teeth if you can. I think Tennessee's state fossil is a replica of Noah's Ark. <laughs> um, no, but it is. Uh, I'm looking it up now. It is a Cretaceous bivalve. So, okay, so no, maybe, that's cool. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I feel like Tennessee might be better off if they had an exciting fossil as their uh, as their state fossil. Uh, you know, something that would maybe uh, get people more excited about the the prospect. You know, like South Carolina, it's the Columbian mammoth for for crying out loud. I I know you're joking. I know you believe that all fossils are exciting. They are. They are all exciting. But I, in terms of say animating the the uh, the kids, uh, I think maybe it pays to have something a little a little you know more action toothier yeah now i will say arizona's state fossil is of course the pet is petrified wood uh from the petrified forest which maybe is not that exciting <laughs> to children but i think that one's pretty exciting so arizona uh mm. you still get credit for a non-animal uh, fossil All right, maybe I'm going to skip ahead to this uh, message we got from Tabitha about the MOA episodes. Uh, I thought this was was really great. So Tabitha writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm a longtime Kiwi listener, and yes, we love being called Kiwis. Who wouldn't want to be named after a furry football with the largest egg-body ratio of any animal? I did not know that. Oh, yeah, I had kind of forgotten about this. But yeah, if you, uh, there's some, some wonderful illustrations of just how much space inside the Kiwi's body, uh, like a mature egg, takes up before it, is, uh, 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 before it leaves the body cavity. Oh, this is kind of like the epic pooping of the sloth that we talked about in the uh, in the Star Wars episode recently, right? Where it's like yeah, up to a absolutely. third of its body weight is poop at sometimes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry, Tab- uh, Tabitha goes on. Uh, she says, love your MOA episode, and I thought I'd write and share MOA facts and some insight on the history and ecology of, and oh, I'm sorry, this is the word, I believe, for, for New Zealand, and I don't know how to pronounce it. I believe it's Aotearoa. That's my best try. A reason for the rapidity of the extinction of large bird species in New Zealand, the moa and other birds like adzebil, swans, and geese, is that New Zealand is lacking in plant species that are edible to humans. There are some fruit-producing plants, we have native blackberry with even worse thorns, but few plants that produce a lot of starch without tremendous effort and obviously none that have been domesticated to enhance yields. The Maori came to New Zealand with 
with advanced farming skills, but the crops they brought with them from Polynesia are tropical. Taro is a staple crop across the Pacific, but can only be grown in the very northern tip of New Zealand. Similarly, kumara, or sweet potato, is a hugely important traditional Maori staple, but can only be grown in the top half of the North Island. In the few hundred years it took to learn how to process and exploit the few plant species that do provide food, the ancestral Maori had little choice but to rely on hunting and fishing to survive. In midden pits in the coastal South Island, there's a distinct change in food remains over time, from mostly bird bones to fish and seal bones, which tracks the extinction of moa and other large birds. I thought this was so interesting. Um... Uh, she goes on, as the major large herbivore in New Zealand, the moa were, was incredibly important to the ecology of the islands. Moa and other large birds distributed seeds which cannot pass through the guts of mammals. In fact, I read an article the other day saying they ate and distributed fungi, which is essential to the health of southern beech forest. I think we talked about this in the second part of our moa episode. This, I th believe this came in after the first part. Uh, but she goes on, uh, the, the fungi, uh, which isn't retained in the guts of deer and pigs, which browse the forest today. Many niches left open by extinction have been filled by introduced mammals in this country, but Moa's role in keeping forests healthy is irreplaceable because they were one of the only browsing megafauna that is a bird. The native forests evolved with bird morphology, and introduced ungulates just can't do the same things with their guts. I'll finish on my favorite Moa ecological fact. Many native trees have two phases of growth, a juvenile stage and an adult stage. Juvenile stages tend to have small or spiky and tough leaves and grow in spindly, unappetizing bush shapes. Once they reach a certain height that Moa can't reach, and this would be three to four meters, they spread out and the leaves change shape, becoming broader to catch more sunlight without being munched on. The most dramatic example of this is the lancewood, or the horoeca. Um, and uh, here she, she attaches an image for us to look at of a juvenile versus an adult lancewood. And, and it, it is, as Tabitha says, like the juvenile looks basically inedible it looks like this kind of spiky nasty bush thing but then once mm -hmm. it gets tall enough the leaves spread out and become something that looks more like a traditional tree yeah this is fascinating because really in in, in terms of evolutionary time the moa is barely gone uh, yeah. You know, all, all the, these plants that would have uh, uh, you know, thrived alongside it still have their defenses in place yeah, that's wonderful. It's like the, um, so So many of the other species of New Zealand are still adapted as if the moa should be there. They're just not. So it's like this link in the chain is missing. Uh, and this is reflected in the rest of Tabitha's email. She says, uh, sorry this got so long. I'm sure you got emails from every Kiwi listener you have uh, because we're desperate for attention and extraordinarily bored at the moment. <laughs> um, the gist is bring moa back if we can. I think there's still a place for them here. Native biomes still cover 23% of New Zealand, and a lot of us are trying hard to increase that and decrease introduced pests. If I could see a moa in my lifetime, I would die happy. I'd also like to bring back the Haas eagle, but that's a harder sell, especially to all the sheep farmers. Mm. Thanks for doing what you do. Keep safe, keep well, and keep learning. Much love from Aotearoa, Tabitha. <laughs> 
All right. Well, speaking of bringing the MOA back, uh, this next email uh, gets into this a little bit as well. This comes to us from James. Dear Robert and Joe, I'm a longtime listener, first-time writer. I just finished your two-part series on the MOA, which was totally awesome, and I enjoyed it immensely. However, as a Kiwi, I want to give you two pieces of information you might enjoy. Number one, we don't mind being called Kiwis at all. We describe ourselves thusly on the red. The National Rugby League team is called the Kiwis. Number two, we may not need to bring back the MOA at all. There are rumors that they may still survive in the unexplored reaches of New Zealand's South Islands, Alps, and Fjordland. That's how it's spelt. Uh, it's spelled F-I-O-R-D-L-A-N-D. In 1993, Patty Freeney, publican of the Beely Hotel near Authors Pass, reported sighting a MOA while tramping in the Alps. He supplied a blurry photo of what is almost certainly a flightless, large flightless bird, see attached. The story made national headlines with believers launching further search parties and decries arguing it must have been an emu escaped from a zoo. The closest zoo is in Christchurch, some three hours drive away. Uh, Patty uh, Freeney passed in 2012, so we may never know if he was being genuine or looking to advertise his hotel or what. Uh, it includes a link to the web story uh, with more details. And then James finishes up. Keep up the great work. I listen to your podcast every week. My favorite is probably the Mind Flayer episode. I have one tattooed on my shoulder, uh, <laughs> but the MOA is a close second. You are the best, James. Oh, thanks, James. Now, I looked up this picture uh, I don't know where this ranks on the Patterson-Gimlin scale. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say I'm not convinced. I, I am not convinced that there is a, a living MOA. It, it seems highly doubtful to me. But there is a blurry, vaguely S-shaped blob in the middle of this photo. Well, you know, I have to, um, I have to say, this is kind of a staple of of seeing uh, some sort of cryptid or some sort of, uh, you know, uh, animal that's largely believed to be extinct in the wild. And it's easy to say, oh, well, that's barely anything. That's such a horrible photo. But if you look around, there are some Facebook groups now that are that, that exist solely to celebrate bad nature photography. And you quickly realize that, no, this is this seems likely, you know, you see something really cool uh, and unexpected uh, mm-hmm. and it's fleeting. And then you rush to take a picture of it. Uh, and chances are you're an amateur or even if you know a little bit of what you're doing, you're 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 rushed and you have to get a picture of the thing as it is leaving your site. You may end up taking a terrible photo of it that does not reflect um, the degree of detail that you yourself actually saw. Uh, For instance, I was recently walking uh, in a cemetery uh, in the Atlanta area and got to see some wild turkeys roaming about, which... uh, you know, wild turkeys, they're, they're not moas by any stretch, uh, but they're still really cool. And they're a rare enough sighting, uh, you know, in in um, in the Atlanta area. So I was excited about it, uh, watched them. And then I realized, oh, I should try and get a picture. So I busted out my phone and took just a terrible picture. Maybe not quite as vague as this, but still, <laughs> um, you know, if I was trying to make a case for having seen, a, you know, a prehistoric turkey, uh, I would have uh, really had an uphill battle. Now, that being said, Based on what we were reading in researching our MOA episodes, it seems like the experts are very doubtful that there are any MOA uh, at large in the world. Yeah, that was my impression as well. And and to be fair, I, I think James is sort of joking in in bringing up this example. I'm I'm not saying like he's trying to pass off something that seems very unlikely as as being real, but uh, 
Yeah, I don't think there's any serious expert opinion from, you know, local zoologists or whatever that that would think that moas are still out there roaming around New Zealand. Yeah. But still, I mean, obviously, I wish it were the case. And it's kind of the curious nature of alleged cryptid sightings and, you know, much like conspiracy theory, really, is that by expressing the idea that it might be, you make it a little more believable. You know, it, you, it, gives, it provides something for, for us to latch on to, sometimes in a way that is maybe hopeful, but also sometimes in a way that is maybe counterproductive. Sure. I mean, there are other ways that you could imagine actually seeing a MOA in New Zealand, and that would be de-extinction. I'm interested that we, you know, one of the things we talked about in the episode was I'm not sure exactly what the what the best argument would be for bringing back an extinct animal like the MOA. Uh, but I don't know. Tabitha kind of made the case like it's an important part of New Zealand ecology and a lot of the other organisms that are, you know, had their evolution shaped around the presence of the MOA are still there. And so bringing back the MOA in a way would would sort of breathe life back into the native New Zealand ecosystem. Yeah, we discussed in those episodes uh, their uh, what scientists think their role uh, probably was in uh, spreading spores, for instance. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you take out a, a keystone species like the MOA and, you know, they, they are they, they are missed. They are missed by the uh, uh, the various plants, uh, animals and uh, uh, fungi that depended on them. So I, I think yeah, that's probably the avenue where you could make the, the the best argument for them rather than just it would be cool if they were here. Now, can we also get the terror birds back? <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope so. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll jump into some more listener mail and we'll talk about soap. All right, we're back. All right. This next message comes to us from our listener, Carl. It was in reference to uh, the episode about soap, which was the last episode of our other podcast, Invention. Uh, Carl says, Dear Robert and Joe, uh, just to let you know, I'm an avid fan of your podcasts, but regrettably don't let you know much because I'm usually gardening, lawn mowing, deck cleaning, or just walking. Uh, But you make those other mindless tasks fly by and I get work done, exercise, edification, and amusement as painlessly as possible. So thank you. First point, I think the soap episode is appropriately the last episode of Invention because I'm convinced that soap was more of a discovery than an invention. It's not hard to imagine that roasting meat over a wood fire with rain afterwards often produced soap-like substances that the ancients found would clean fats off of implements, clothes, skin, etc. By the way, I'm bummed about discontinuing Invention as such, but I understand that could happen and it's good to hear you'll keep the Invention spirit in Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, and then a little bit later in his message, he says, uh, I thought the the fist bump versus handshake thing was funny with regard to passing the peace. Remember, we talked about how uh, in churches, uh, there, there's this many churches have a tradition of shaking hands. Uh, the people shake hands with each other and they, you know, they say peace or the peace of the Lord be with you or something. Um, mm mm-hmm. 
And we were discussing a study that found that a fist bump actually transmits many fewer infectious agents than a handshake does. Uh, and so uh, Carl says here, in my church, which is Eastern Orthodox, we have a ritual called the Rite of Forgiveness, where we hug and kiss each other while forgiving them and asking for their forgiveness, in turn, to start off Lent. I guess you could say we take full advantage of our immune systems. Thanks for one of the best podcasts going, Carl. Oh well, thank you, Carl. That's that's very kind. But yeah, this does raise the, uh, you know, the, the reality that when it comes to um, various greetings uh, uh, and and so forth, I mean, there are going to be cultural variations. Uh, you know, some in some cultures, hugging or or kissing is is more of the the standard mode of greeting, and uh, so perhaps it's it's you know it's more more challenging to make those changes in those cultures. And I'll just add uh, one other message we got from a listener named Chris, who uh, also talked about a guest preacher at his church one time who had a sense of humor. And Chris says that the guest preacher encouraged uh, the people in the church to greet each other with what uh, the preacher called holy knuckles. And that was oh, nice. the fist bump instead of the handshake. I don't know if this was for a reason of uh, of sanitation or whatever, or of uh, you know hygiene, but maybe. Well, that's perfect, right? Because you can take a Sharpie and you can write H-O-L-Y on your knuckles uh, before you right. go in there for the bump. Right, like Robert Mitchum in uh, Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter is a fantastic movie, by the way. Robert Mitchum is a force of nature in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's one that I've r remarkably never seen. I've never seen that. I've never seen uh, Cape Fear. So uh, I, should, I should really... Uh, uh, what fill in those holes as they say oh on movie crush yeah yeah they're always talking about hole filling <laughs> i guess i have less an opinion about uh cape fear night of the hunter is a horrifying movie it, it feels like dangerous and scary ahead of its time robert mitchum plays this uh, uh this psychotic murderous traveling preacher it's it, yeah he's he, he's powerful awesome All right, here's another one. This comes to us from Steve, dear Robert and Joe. Happy belated 10th anniversary. I hope this, that boy, that seems like it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> that was in a different time. Time um, has no meaning anymore. <laughs> yeah. I hope this finds you both in good spirits and good health. Thank you so much for years of entertainment, education, and mind-blowing content. You have managed to make uh, my hour commute one of the highlights of my day for the past seven years, and I greatly appreciate your thoughtful, nuanced, and insightful treatments of fascinating and often overlooked topics. I'm a general surgeon in Los Angeles, and in the operating room, we take turns on choosing what we listen to during surgery. Categories range from classical, our scrub text pick, to death metal by a 70-year-old uh, anesthesiologist, and I usually put on an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Invention. I find that the mental uh, engagement actually helps me stay relaxed and focused on the task at hand rather than distract me. At first, the staff rolled their eyes at me, but most have come around uh, and themselves became big fans of your show. It always sparks interesting discussions and debates, and I also like that it never gets too loud to hear important communication, unlike Dr. Death Metal's music. <laughs> Things are definitely becoming crazy with the COVID patients flooding the hospitals, but we are managing just fine so far. Most um, Angelinos seem to be taking social distancing very seriously, and our much maligned sprawl is finally working to our advantage. 
advantage. Thank you for helping disseminate accurate and helpful information regarding this challenging disease. It goes an incredibly long way to helping us minimize or at least slow the spread. Although it's not the kind of content you would usually cover, it is a true public service that you have done. One small thing in the COVID episode, though, Joe refers to the mortality rate of the flu as 0.01%, probably just a slip of the tongue, but it is important to realize it is 0.1%, still much lower than COVID. Ah, well, I didn't realize I said that, but if indeed I did, thank you so much for that correction, Steve. So uh, Steve continues, uh, I've probably come up with a couple hundred other comments on topics you've covered over the years, but I'll keep it down to two that stuck in my head. Number one, regarding the Bandersnatch episode, <laughs> I always thought that the demon Pax is actually you. Me, us, the viewer, player, Pax is described as the thief of destiny. And by making the choices for the protagonist, we decide his fate slash steal his destiny. The scene where uh, Stefan is communicating with the viewer through his computer is the aha moment in which he realizes someone has taken over his ability to make his own decisions and choose his own adventure. Or maybe Pax is Netflix. <laughs> I think that's a strong uh, you know, reading of it. Uh, certainly, uh, it's one of the beautiful things about Bandersnatch, though, is that depending on exactly how you make your way through the plot, some of those elements are stressed more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think the second time I watched it, I was, I think I was able to avoid like the really overt Netflix uh, integration stuff, uh, which mm-hmm. I liked more. Um, but now I'm forgetting. I probably need to take a third jaunt through there just to be sure. I uh, just wanted to bring up also, this this came up in an episode since we did the Bandersnatch thing, but in response to Steve, there is an actual monster that is known in some ways as the Thief of Destiny, and it's the the monster Anzu, who's a sort of uh, bad god or, or kind of winged monster thing from many ancient Mesopotamian religions, and, and Anzu goes in and steals the tablets of destiny from the king of the gods, and I believe uh, somebody has to go punish him and, and get them back, Am I might be Ninurta or something. All right. Uh, and then he moves on to number two. In your X-ray episode of Invention, I think Robert made a comment suggesting that bullets have to be removed from the body. This is actually not usually the case unless the bullet is near certain vital structures, uh, eroding into a blood vessel, bowel, etc., and is a common misconception that leads to many angry trauma patients insisting that they need surgery. Digging around to remove a stray bullet often causes more damage than it's worth, and the bullet is usually sterile due to the high temperature. President Garfield died of sepsis due Due to wound infection following many painful, uh, likely misguided attempts to remove the bullet fragments and may have survived otherwise with basic wound care. Uh, this is a, this is a great point. If memory serves, I think I, I brought that up because I was kind of like saying, hey, if there was a bullet in your body and you had to get it out, um, you know, how would you go about that properly before the age of x-ray? Uh, so I, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to imply that that bullets always need to come out of the body because I mean, just in life, you occasionally run into somebody who, you know, will anecdotally mention how they still have uh, a bullet or a fragment of a bullet in their body stemming from some old injury. Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and what Steve says about uh, President Garfield here, James Garfield, who is sometimes said to have been killed by an assassin's bullet, he he was shot while he was in office, but he, it took him, I don't remember how long, it was like a month or more after that to die. And yeah, Steve's exactly right that like the, the surgeons kept going in and digging around in him. They were using unsanitary methods and his wound got infected and he died. So he was probably killed more by the medical intervention than by the bullet. 
So Steve closes out here and says, thank you again for all the wonderful content you've created over the years. And I look forward to the next 10, hopefully not from all from your closet. Please stay <laughs> curious and safe. All the best, Steve L. Uh, well, thank you, Steve. Uh, as of this recording, we are both still in our closets. Um, mm-hmm. One day, yeah, hopefully that will change. Okay, next let's turn to some messages we got in response to our episode about The Fly, the uh, the Cronenberg movie, the the king of bad feelings and reaching into the slime. Uh, so uh, so multiple listeners got in touch to correct us about something we said uh, in the episode, which is that we were talking about before the Cronenberg version of the movie, there was the original The Fly from 1958, and we talked about the fact that Vincent Price was in the movie, but I think we both misremembered him as the actor who played the scientist who creates the telepods and gets turned into a fly. And that's mm-hmm. not the case. He was in the movie, but he played the scientist's brother. So that was it was not Vincent Price in the spider's web saying, help me, help me. Uh, we got a number of messages about this. So much apologies to the uh, to the career of Vincent Price. Yes, though, really, it does underline just how great, again, just how great a remake Cronenberg's The Fly is. Uh, I mean, not only is it the one that we tend to remember and we tend to look back on, but, you know, why is Vincent Price not playing? Like, why is the the main character in the original Fly, uh, in you know, the story as well uh, that inspired it, why why are they not the ones going on this uh, this crazy, um, uh, you know, metamorphosis uh, uh, um, infused journey. Why are they? Uh, why is our main character outside of it? Uh, so I think that was a, a, a brilliant change uh, on uh, the, the part of Cronenberg and the other writers involved in the remake. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, but so this next pair of messages, I'm going to sort of do them together because they, they get at the same thing. Uh, this came from two listeners, uh, Linda and Fernando, who got in touch with us after the episode about the fly to, re- to respond to a, a series of comments we made about the effectiveness of placebos. And uh, so Fernando writes, hello, guys, longtime listener, first time caller, truly enjoy the show and so forth. I couldn't pass on an opportunity to blow you guys' minds. You guys' minds. Uh, In the episode, when you reviewed Cronenberg's The Fly, you mentioned in passing the placebo effect. You were wondering if somebody needed to believe in the supposed medicine for the placebo effect to work, or whether simply believing in the placebo effect itself could do the trick. The surprising response is apparently neither. Uh, I I was recently, a few months ago, listening to another science podcast, and I think the pod he he gives a couple of options, but I think the one he's talking about is NPR's Hidden Brain. Um, Oh, a great show. Yeah. And uh, Fernando continues. And in a show about the placebo, they interviewed a lady who had suffered from chronic pain for many years and tried different medicines and techniques to little or no effect. She was enrolled in a study of the placebo effect. And for the first time, her pain subsided. She was placed in the placebo group, of course. But the thing is, she was told she was in that group. She knew she was taking placebos and was not expecting to get better, but she did nevertheless. Anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that little tidbit. Please keep up the good work. Uh, I can't really express how pleasurable and provocative it is for me to intrude on your conversations. Cheers, Fernando. And then uh, Linda writes in about the same subject, attributing it to an episode of NPR's Hidden Brain, uh, where she adds an element of explanation for the outcome. 
Linda writes, the takeaway was that the doctor who prescribed the placebo, who told her it was just a sugar pill, was kind and attentive and seemed to really care. And somehow that was what made the placebo work for her. Wondering what you guys might think of this angle of looking at placebos and medicine in general. I wonder if people like my elderly mother in chronic pain and who have been addicted to opiates could be provided a placebo in place of their pain meds in order to break the addiction if the doctor doctor was nice enough. Uh, and so, so thanks for getting in touch, Fernando and Linda. I, I don't know the answer to that question, Linda, but it, it is very interesting to consider how a placebo could work when somebody knows it's a placebo and, and whether the doctor's presence has something to do with it. So obviously it could be reduction in pain due to just positive social interaction and attention, you know, like feeling loved, feeling appreciated, feeling taken care of can in some ways make you feel better. There, there can also, I think, be aspects, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, aspects of relief that you feel due to reassurance from a knowledgeable authority. And I know I've talked about the experience of going to a doctor with a complaint, uh, you know, we, being worried about some kind of like feeling in the body and then being told that it's nothing, that uh, it's fine. And then the feeling goes away. It's just like having a knowledgeable doctor say, no, I don't see anything wrong. It makes the original complaint just disappear. But then finally, I, I was wondering about the idea of um, sort of a double placebo effect. Like placebos sometimes work presumably because people expect them to work. And if you're aware of this fact, could you also expect the placebo to, quote, work, making even a known placebo effective as a placebo? Hmm. Like you get a placebo from expecting the placebo effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It, it, it sounds possible. Uh, I also like, you know, what you mentioned about the, you know, tr trusting in a doctor and, you know, trusting in an expert uh, and, and uh, you know, when you receive feedback on, on, on what you're experiencing, because it also raises the reverse question, you know, uh, then how does, uh, what is the effect of having, I'm not going to say like a bad doctor uh, necessarily, but uh, because we don't even necessarily have to go to there like what when you go to a doctor where perhaps you don't feel like you're really heard on a topic or perhaps mm. their you know their bedside manner is not uh, as solid as uh, as other professionals working in their field like to what extent that ends up uh, affecting the effectiveness of um, of medicine you know via the placebo effect Oh yeah, what you could get like a a brusque doctor gives you a nocebo effect Yeah yeah I don't know. Yeah, I, this seems like the kind of thing there there may be some uh, papers on. I have to dig around. I'm not sure how you test. Well, there are ways you could test for that, actually. I guess it would be harder to do that ethically. You you can't like tell a doctor like be mean yeah. to your patients. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, it would have to. Yeah, it would have obviously have to be a little. It'd be somewhat removed from from actual clinical work. But uh, it'd be interesting to see where that thread would take us. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we need to take another break, but then we will be right back uh, to round this out with a couple more emails. All right. We're back. Uh, now, obviously, folks that listen to the show, sometimes you listen to older episodes. Uh, a lot of older episodes have been uh, coming up in the feed recently because, for one thing, we always run an, an, a rerun episode on Saturdays, pull something out of the vault for our vault episode. But then we also have had all these uh, playlists that have come out as part of a, uh, you know, a company initiative uh, to uh, provide some, uh, some curated selections of past episodes to listen to uh, during this uh, time of pandemic. 
Uh, so uh, here is one from Brett, and uh, this is a response to Sacred Mountains. Uh, these were a pair of episodes that we have uh, recently rerun in the feed. Hello, Robert and Joe. Big fan of your show, and I love the questions you ask. Always lead us down a path of education and curiosity. I wanted to write about the sacred mountain and add my opinion about mountains. Living in Colorado, it is a culture here to, quote, head to the mountains, whether for biking, hiking, or skiing. There is a term out there that is directed to how many uh, 14ers you have bagged, meaning how many you have climbed. In doing so, your perspective about their true nature can be obtained. From afar, they look dominant and overwhelming with how far they reach into the sky and seem to touch the heavens. And when you drive to, uh, uh, to hike one, you cannot always see the top, leading you to, you to believe that the hike is, is just that, a hike. But once you start going up, and you have to, uh, that is when the power of the mountain can be felt. You notice your legs feel heavy, like someone has tied cinder blocks to each foot. You pay attention to your breathing because it feels like you cannot get enough oxygen. You sweat, even though it might uh, only be 50 degrees Fahrenheit. But upon reaching the summit, which is never the first top of the mountain you see, called a false summit, and after you catch your breath, there is just a feeling that comes over you that is hard to describe. You are just in awe about how far away everything seems and how small you as a human really are. It is very joyous, and most people do some sort of celebration. Thinking about uh, to, to centuries ago, people probably did not have a concept of oxygen and an understanding of why it becomes difficult to breathe. This could bring about great respect for elevation. Here in Colorado, once up top of 14er, the oxygen level is 56%, uh, that of sea level. So I can understand the respect people must have cast upon the mountains and how it happened. Also, when up that high, it is usually windy and storms can come out of nowhere, producing lightning and Hail, like you were angering the gods for trying to climb to heaven. Also, if it happens to snow, becoming snowblind can lead to disorientation, which I have experienced. Another point is that today we have roads and paths to access the peaks. Uh, we're trying to get to the base of a mountain out there long ago in itself was a feat. Trying to find your way back without a path can feel impossible. Ancients may not have had our understanding of science, but they respected the power of the mountains, which a lot of us here also do. I appreciate your time, and please stay safe. Brett in Colorado. Oh, what a wonderful message. Thank you, Brett. Yeah, the, he raises some excellent points here about just the experience of climbing the mountain, all these little things that, uh, you know, we might not really have, have thought about as much or stressed in that episode. Like, I love the idea of the false peaks, you know, or mm -hmm. just you know, driving home, um, like the bodily awareness of that kind of uh, physical exertion, which certainly there's an element to that in all exercise, you know, where, oh, my body, I'm feeling my body more than usual. I'm feeling my breath more than usual. And that is grounding us in the now. It is a, an exercise in mindfulness, the exercise in mindfulness to a very large extent, like the primordial exercise in, in mindfulness. Uh, but uh, the change in elevation would seem to, um, uh, to make this even more pronounced. Yeah, yeah, totally. That, I think that's exactly right. And now I just wish I could go climb a mountain, now more than ever, yeah, instead too. of re recording a podcast in my closet. Thanks, Brett. <laughs> 
I, I totally, so I, I in no way have ever done like the, the actual like dangerous or athletic type of mountain climbing, you know, uh, I, I'm not that sort of person, but I do absolutely feel this urge to get up on top of natural heights. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I see a, I see a big hill or a rock and I, I feel an instinct to climb on top of it. It's very powerful. And I, and I do want to obey. That's the goat mind speaking to you, right? It's <laughs> the, uh, the satyr brain taking over. All right, I think we should finish up with one last email here, and I, and I really loved this one. So this was in response to um, uh, our episodes about a world before fire. This is mm-hmm. also an older pair of episodes that we reran recently, I think, um, where we talked about the history of fire on Earth. You know, the interesting fact that Earth is often known as the water planet, but Earth is maybe even more uniquely the fire planet. It's the only place in the solar system we could think of really where you could have fire because it has the oxygen to react with the fuel and all that things that other things in the solar system that we think of as fiery like the sun are not fiery like the sun is a you know giant ball of hot gas and plasma big fusion reaction and nothing's actually on fire there uh, but then we also talked in that episode about how necessary fire is for the unique history of human technological development for example it's really hard to imagine uh, like an underwater intelligent species ever developing the same kind of technological regimes that we did uh, that ruled human history because those regimes are based so strongly on things like metalworking which as we understand it is dependent on fire I don't know Maybe you could figure out some other way on using hydrothermal vents to work metal or something, but it it, it seems hard to picture. And in response to this uh, pair of episodes, uh, Corey writes in. Corey says, Robert and Joe, I was listening to some back episodes and found the world before fire, the human flame. It was very interesting and included the unintended bonus that it reminded me of Chesterton's uh, remarks on the poetical name of Smith in Heretics. Thank you for what you do. And then Corey attaches a quote from G.K. Chesterton. And so the context here is that Chesterton is talking about um, finding what he calls the poetical sense lying under all things. He's essentially trying to make a point that, in fact, there are no uninteresting subjects. There are only subjects where we fail to see what's interesting about them. And so somebody challenges him on on this sensibility of his and says uh, they offer up the example of a character in a book named Mr. Smith. Presumably this name is is a boring name, right? It's an unremarkable feature for a character to have. And like, how could you find something interesting about a character named Smith? And Chesterton responds like this, quote, In the case of Smith, the name is so poetical that it must be an arduous and heroic matter for the man to live up to it. The name of Smith is the name of the one trade that even kings respected. It could claim half the glory of that arm of Virumque, which all epics acclaimed. The spirit of the smithy is so close to the spirit of song that it has mixed in a million poems, and every blacksmith is a harmonious blacksmith. Even the village children feel that in some dim way the smith is poetic, as the grocer and cobbler are not poetic, when they feast on the dancing sparks and deafening blows in the cavern of that creative violence, the brute repose of nature, the passionate cunning of man, the strongest of earthly metals, the weirdest of earthly elements, the unconquerable iron subdued by its only conqueror, the wheel and the plowshare, the sword and the steam hammer, the arraying of armies and the whole legend of arm, 
terms, all these things are written briefly indeed, but quite legibly on the visiting card of Mr. Smith. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love this. And I, 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 for me, this encapsulates a lot of what I, I try to do with this show is try to find the thing that you might not even realize has something interesting and mysterious lying underneath it and, and dig down into that, that sediment. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that, that there are no uninteresting topics, uh, that, that is something that we, we try and take to heart here. I mean, there, there are, of course, there are topics that we tend not to cover on the show. Right. But I think it has always been our experience. It's always been my experience with, uh, you know, how stuff works uh, as well prior uh, to all of this that, you know, any any uh, assignment that one gets, any topic that is passed down or suggested uh, by, by another, you know, there's, there's going to be something there once you start digging around. You're going to find some nugget of wonder. Well, what I would admit is that uh, I think – I think I agree with Chesterton. Like there are no uninteresting topics, only topics which we fail to find what's interesting about. Uh, but there, but I admit that there are plenty of topics where I keep failing to find what's interesting about them. <laughs> like the, you know, there there are things that don't interest me. I just want to say that I I think that's a failing on my part. I haven't gotten there yet. I mean, part of it is like you know, you lock yourself in a room. Uh, long enough and the the walls will start speaking to you, right? Your mind will find uh, the patterns where there are no patterns. Uh, spend enough time <laughs> with a topic that you might otherwise not really, um, you know, that you not, uh, might otherwise not research. And you'll, you'll, you'll suddenly start seeing things you didn't see before, though hopefully things that are actually there. Right. I hope we're not just like uh, always hallucinating interesting things about. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we do our best to keep it real. I think so. All right. Well, I think maybe we need to call our first listener mail episode right there, but we've got another whole episode worth of listener mail to catch up on that we're going to feature next week, I believe. Yes. And I believe the plan is we're going to have recorded these listener mails before anyone has had a chance to respond to the episode that we have coming out this month uh, on a Star Wars related topic. So if you, if you end up writing in about that topic, uh, we'll have to catch you on the next listener mail, which, uh, you know, hopefully won't be quite as, uh, as far in the future. Uh, maybe we can get back in a pattern of doing one of these a month like we used to. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if we get to do anything like we used to. That's the, <laughs> the, the big open question, right? Right. But either way, keep them coming. Uh, we, we always love hearing from you. Absolutely. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find us wherever you find your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, whatever strange program or aggregator, uh, you know, uh, you know, back uh, alley, shady uh, man in a trench coat who sells podcasts on thumb drives, I don't know, <laughs> wherever you get the show, if there is a way to rate, review, and subscribe, then you should do it. If the man in the trench coat has like a, a notepad where you write down a little review and uh, and leave your your name and social security number then i guess go ahead and do that because that probably helps us out huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to uh to submit some listener mail that might be featured in a future listener mail episode you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Thank you.